Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, it's Manveen, bringing you something special for the weekend. This week, the Times said a fond farewell to the legend that is David Aronovich, who left the paper after nearly 18 years and after three years of brilliantly hosting this podcast. As well as appearing on Stories of Our Times, every week, David and his friend and colleague Danny Finkelstein would join Matt Chorley on Times Radio to talk about the week's news. We miss David already, and I'm sure you will too, so we thought we'd bring you this week's final instalment of Finkelvich as a little treat. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on DAB, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app. And it's all free as well, so you can listen to us wherever you are. Now, talking of best bits, one of my favourite bits of the show since we launched way back in the summer of 2020 has been Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich giving us their unique take on the news. In fact, Finkelvich was even invented by uh, David Aronovich. Uh, well, David is leaving the Times and Times Radio uh, this week, so we thought as a very special treat we'd have an extended edition of Finkovich, including getting some of you on to put your questions to them. So, for the final time on the Redbox podcast, it's time for this. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's for the final time. Uh, Danny Finkelstein has joined us in the studio. Hello. And for only about the third time ever, possibly. I think it is the third time. David Aronovich is here. He's got a jacket on. He's got a jacket on. That's how special it is. Well, I I think the Undertakers have done a fantastic (laughs) job. I wonder if you're off to like the magistrates' court after. So that's a bit, that was a better joke. Um, like, lovely to see you both uh, before the final uh, fake off before David uh, leaves the Times. Uh, right, let's um, let's move on and talk about well the excitement. The ex- excitement, the right word. The Windsor framework. Are you excited? Um, which should I be more excited by? The Windsor framework or the Stormont break? 
Well, one is part of the other. Uh, yeah, OK, so I was struck by Rishi Sunak saying how wonderful this was for Northern Ireland because now they would not only have access to the UK market, but also, he said, access to the European single market, which makes them a wonderful place for investors. And I thought, did you hear yourself just say that, given that you were one of the major campaigners to leave the European single market? Um, and I thought, yeah, this is a good deal for Northern Ireland, um, whatever the DUP says, because no one has seriously questioned the uh, Northern Ireland's role in the in the United Kingdom. That was always a kind of chimerical thing, which... Um, was very big for them. But now, if I was going to have a business making something and situate it anywhere in the United Kingdom, I'd go to Northern Ireland because it's going to be a brilliant place to be. And also, just before you anticipate your question, I don't think Boris Johnson will oppose this because I think Boris Johnson understands perfectly well by now that there is no vote to be gained, certainly not in the United Kingdom, in the rest of the United Kingdom, from opposing this deal. And it will... It'll go through and it'll go through quickly, I think. We'll come on to Boris in a minute, but somebody, somebody's tweeting and called the Real Professor T. Because if the New Deal keeps Northern Ireland in the single market and retains UK sovereignty, why can't the whole of the UK have it, Danny? <laughs> Which is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, look, it certainly raises some questions of, uh, for, for Rishi Sunak about his support for Brexit, without any doubt. But um, it does show a number of other things. And just to uh, even up the scales, one of the things it demonstrates is that the European Union was capable of moving mm. from its position. So something that was argued is essentially there were a number of things that EU offered. They would take it or leave it. They wasn't a solution to the problem we had in Northern Ireland, albeit that uh, it was a problem that we created by the decision we made over Brexit. Um, and this does show that that's not the case. However, it only shows it because the, the Britain has moved from its position of trying to goad the European Union into making concessions, something that was never, ever going to work. And actually, it, it began this with David Cameron when he was Prime Minister with the suggestion to him that, uh, you know, his way of working should be to say he was going to introduce Article 50, which was one of Owen Patterson's mm. brilliant ideas. And um, it has gone all the way through, and the, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was another example of that. And this just illustrates that that approach doesn't work and that's not, to my mind, a surprise. So I found, weirdly, at the same time as thinking this was a great triumph, I found myself quite annoyed that it's taken us all this time to learn what seemed to me to be fairly simple lessons, like it might be a good idea to read pieces of um, <laughs> treaty that you're about to oh, sign. he's so old-fashioned in his ways. I know, he, won't, he just will not adopt the <laughs> Nigel Farage approach, which is, who cares, it's got the name Court in it and European oh, in it, and as far as I'm concerned, that was all bad. To be fair to him, I haven't heard this particular clip, so I can't speak for myself. I'm relying on what we've just been told, but it is pretty extraordinary. After all this some, time. Well, that somebody who, who invests a lot of importance in our freedom from the European Court of Justice doesn't actually know what it is. Um, and it, it does suggest a fundamental lack of seriousness about the real implications of dealing with these bodies, which I don't think is unreasonable, um, you know, for, for, for his critics to point out, let's put it that way. Um, and into, on, on the question of Boris Johnson, because it's quite, uh, by being as un-Boris Johnson as possible, Rishi Sunak uh, didn't really talk about what he was doing, uh, got very cross when the Times reported even little bits of what he'd got, because he wanted no... Nothing happening in public, no big public row, clearly wooing Ursula von der Leyen and uh, other European leaders. And by being nice and professional and pragmatic, he's ended up getting a deal. 
But in doing so, has he finished off Boris Johnson? I, you know, well, who ne- I, I never think that's uh, the case at any point, and I certainly neither does he. Um, but uh, I, I do, I do think one of the things that we talked about with the difference between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson was always either ideological or personal ambition. But people left out a very important feature of the difficulty of their relationship, which is their very different working methods. I think Rishi Sunak found Boris chaotic. He couldn't rely on anything he said at one time or another. The meetings would meander on. The one meeting would contradict the meeting before it. Uh, you could see the negotiating strategies were wayward. It was their very different personal styles were as much responsible yeah. for their falling out as anything else. Yeah, I mean, one is a head boy of a major public school and the other one would never be head boy or even prefect. He'd just kind of pass on. I mean, uh, Sunak is a very, very different character from Boris Johnson. But I think politically, I do think he's almost certainly cut the ground from underneath him, at least for the time being. And in any party other than the Conservative Party, actually forever. Because, as I said, there just isn't a constituency for Borisism in the country. And sooner or later, most Conservatives will twig to the fact that that means there isn't really, there shouldn't really be that much of one in the Conservative Party either. And kind of realism kind of suggests and self-interest suggests that they will arrive at that point, and maybe they have just now. Well, it's extraordinary. It was only, what, a week or so ago when friends of Boris Johnson were telling the papers he was going to use this bill to... Challenge Rishi Sunak for the premiership. It's amazing. Now look, he's the, well, only, he's the only person who hasn't spoken about it. Don't you think that that's a kind of fits into the category of just a kind of little try on? You just stick it out there and see what the reaction is, and the reaction is, oh, do go away. <laughs> yeah, one of the things about, I mean, there are a number of things about the statement with friends of Boris Johnson. First of all, you know, I think it's he's one of those people who's like quite popular with lots of people, but doesn't actually have very many friends. Um, he's, he has some kind of temporary political allies. I'm not convinced he necessarily told them that I'm going to use that. They, mm. A lot of times they'll have been rung up and say, what do you think Boris thinks? He won't have said anything, but they don't want to look stupid. Uh, they probably haven't spoken to him for a month. Um, and then they tell him uh, whatever the journalist is asked in the first place in order to look as though they're in on the act. Um, so I wouldn't. I don't trust those kind of uh, references that much. No. <laughs> I, I completely agree, but our, our, our Westminster general, colleagues are forced upon them. As a general, I always assume that friends of is the person. Source close to might be a spad or something, but friends of I always assumed is the person themselves. Well, Allies be. of? Allies, sort of halfway... Right. Somebody who agrees with them who definitely hasn't spoken to them. Could be. I did once, I remember once years ago, I was in politics and I rang somebody who'd been referred to as a kind of female MP and I, I said, I thought that person, that was a brilliant insight. And, and he goes, it was you, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Yeah. Um, um, I'll tell you what, well, well, it turns out you can't trust everything you read in the papers. Well, we're going to talk about trust next and trust in politics. Turns out the public don't, according to a new survey. Who'd have thought? We were just talking about uh, what's happened to Rishi Sunak and how this is a vindication for boring, dull competence. But actually, it sets up, Danny, an election where two people who are boring and dull and potentially competent lay out their plans and then the, the, the public can decide on them. Yeah, I think it does. And, and you know, uh, last time was a very difficult election campaign for a lot of people. I had a uh, choice at the end of the day between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. I, I had never had any doubt as to what I was going to do in an election like that. I mean, fun if I can't vote because I'm a peer, but I never had any doubt what I wanted to be the outcome of that election. But it didn't give me any great pleasure. At one point, I thought there was going to be a choice between No Deal and Jeremy Corbyn. Even more, more difficult was I thought No Deal was a completely unconscionable thing, but um, so was Corbyn, so... So do you think politics is getting a bit more sensible 
David? Um, I th- it looks to me like the kind of populist moment has passed. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Conservative Party, and maybe also Labour, will be prey to kind of populist impulses. I mean, the whole stuff about... Rishi Sunak's continuous stuff about stopping the boats coming when he doesn't actually have the policies to do it. Um, at a point when actually both parties are prepared, for example, to embrace the idea that Im- immigration on a large scale is actually a good thing and something that we need and is going to happen anyway, then I will know that the populist impulse uh, has, has really passed. But it does seem... I do think the people are, especially after the pandemic, will value competence more. And it'll be very interesting to see how Sunak and Starmer develop their antagonistic relationship and what kind of antagonistic form it takes. Because you've still got people in the Conservative Party, and I think probably on the edge of the Labour Party, who say, do whatever it is. This section of the voters tickles them and so on. And and, And then you can't do it. It won't work. And then you become a hostage to fortune. Then you become a hostage to fortune and then people lose trust again. And to some extent, if you're going to win anyway, don't make yourself a hostage to lots of little fortunes like that. Um, Well, let's look more broadly at trust. There's a new survey out today uh, looking at uh, trust. Uh, I think it was done at the end of January, so things have moved on a little bit, but not a lot. Trust in the government is at its lowest level since 2016, at just 27%. Uh, 68% said politicians were more likely to lie. 77% said they were making things worse. 80% said they are making the country more divided. Rishi Sunak's uh, trust ratings down 10 points to 25%. Keir Starmer trusted by only 31%. Um, maybe this... Will this start to... Sh- I mean... Or is it ever ever the case, Tony? I think this may be the only case where one of your guests has actually answered the question a whole week before you asked it. Because if you remember last <laughs> oh, week, yes. you asked me whether I had any faith in politics. Yeah, it was a Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett sketch like <laughs> yeah, that, wasn't there? <laughs> so you asked, asked me the question the week before the feature. Whether yeah. I could have faith in politics, that was it. And I interpreted that as a question about trust in politics rather than about religious faith. <laughs> so I've answered that, which is that I... I, I uh, while being aware of the public mood towards politicians and understanding the reason for it, you know, if you, for example, in some of my, you know, business uh, work, yeah. um, you're required by regulation to have much greater precision about the things that you say <laughs> and to insist that they, they always they be realistic and that they be fair and balanced and are informed and you don't have that. In politics, so I understand, and also politicians promise people things sometimes things that they want that then ultimately turn out to be not practical or not possible, and that is that is eroded trust in politicians. But I do think it's important that people don't make sweeping judgments about politicians. Otherwise, when somebody decides to decorate the flat, their flat uh, with the uh, with with pound notes provided by the party donor, um, they no longer able to tell the difference between that and maybe saying something a little too over exuberant about boats yeah david yeah i, I <clears throat> there's always been a large section of the electorate that has always said politicians are all in it for themselves and etc essentially because politicians go about the grubby business of asking you for something <laughs> and trying to get it from you by persuasion and sometimes that persuasion is not entirely kind of fact-based etc and people and, and, and people suspect them on the basis that they are kind of making those requests as well the, the, the problem has been that a significant additional group of people i think has probably come to the distrust side a large number of them as a consequence of the i think of the brexit campaign and what happened subsequently in the sort of what you might call the educated middle classes who might before have taken a more nuanced approach. I mean, maybe they didn't, and I'm not totally uh, um, uh, across the facts here, etc. I'm just speculating yeah. that this would that this has been an additional kind of section which has been added. Um, 
and maybe some experience of um, of decent uh, politics for a while will change some of that bit round. But for a lot of young people, for example, I mean, we touched on this occasionally. Things are difficult enough and politics offers them little enough or has offered them little enough for us to think that maybe something's got to change in that before they're going to turn around and say, yeah, we we kind of quite like you again or we trust you again. I suppose, is there something about social media and young people being more engaged with issues? A collective, you know, they're more aware there are lots of people who agree with them at their age. But that then isn't reflected because, as a rule, older people vote and, the you know, look after the pensioners and all that. That sort of thing that plays yeah, out well, like that. I, I, so yeah. they feel even more aggrieved. They're well, no, more engaged collectively on social media and, and that sort of thing. But they then feel even more ignored. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes well that makes some sense. But we've, we've actually been saying that for a long time. Yeah. Actually, my son, my son um, said to me uh, on the question of you know capitalism and young people's support or failure to support capitalism. He said you're always trying to give people an argument when what they're after is a house, and and I think that's <laughs> I think that's very perceptive. Dad, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very perceptive. In other words, in other words, a lot of trust in politics and uh, the political atmosphere uh, and belief in fundamental things like property law and things like that is driven by whether everybody feels that they benefit to some degree out of it. Mm. I, so I think this is a commonality between... My, David and I might disagree sometimes about how we do that, but a commonality between us is that we both think that um, you know the, the, the political system has to deliver for everybody, otherwise people will lose support in it. And you, and you can't win them back simply by going on a radio programme and saying you should be a bit more trusting. People have to feel, you know, it just doesn't work. People have to feel as though there's some... What's in it for me in this trust is what they're asking. Well, I want to talk about things you actually disagree about um, in the next half hour because somebody's somebody's messaged in saying uh, the best thing of which has been those occasions when they've really disagreed. If you've got them for an hour, can we have at least half an hour of them arguing, please? So prepare yourselves for that. Uh, I'll ask you the thing that you uh, you most disagree about, and we're going to get some 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 of you going to come on and put your questions to uh, Danny and David uh, for the um, for the last time as we do Finkelvich with uh, D- Daniel Finkelstein and David Wadovich. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A very good morning to you. It's nice to have you with us on a Tuesday morning. And as a special treat, as we say goodbye to David Wadovich, who's leaving the time to speak. But we are doing the last ever Finkelvich. Uh, and so we thought we'd look back. We're going to get some listeners on in a minute to ask you some questions, so brace yourselves for that. We thought we'd look back at what we first discussed on the very first edition oh of Finkovich God. before it was even talked, before you even christened it Finkovich, back in June 2020. 
uh, proof that all the way back then, David did once know how to say good morning like a normal person. <laughs> We're joined now by Daniel Finkstein and David Aronovich. Uh, morning, Danny. Good morning. Uh, morning, David. Good morning. The first and last time he's done that, ever since then when I've said good morning, you've had a go at me about something or, or complained in some way. Uh, then, uh, one of the big issues back then was Black Lives Matter, because, of course, it was summer t- uh, 2020. So- socialist in- infiltration of groups like Black Lives Matter. I, I agree with it, but I worry always about how organisations like that um, end up with a core movement, a bit like Stop the War did, which are uh, taken over by hard left political parties. Well, the first thing you have to say is there isn't a kind of regulator set up to regulate protest movements. There's not a kind of off-prot. <laughs> <laughs> it just took me... Um, I- it, it was all we talked about that summer, David. Black Lives Matter, well, not all, because there was also a bit of COVID as well. And because of Black Lives Matter and the widespread conversation about black people being treated less fairly, both in America and in the UK, and then it all just got a bit caught up in all the, all, you know, and then, it's, you know, we've moved on and we've stopped talking about it, despite all the same issues we were talked about then still being there. Uh, uh, uh. I think part of the problem is that so big have been our economic problems and so big have been our international problems that we've found it easier to get entrenched in certain kind of social issues where people where where people are able to take very, very strong positions that satisfy them that don't actually require a vast amount of consideration or a vast amount of thought. It doesn't mean that anyone are wrong at any kind of given time, but I found it deeply frustrating and find it increasingly frustrating that you'll have continuous debates about statues and traditions from one side and then what's a kind of proper way of speaking yeah. or, or, or or slamming people for not having a proper way of speaking on the other. Um, so much so that most of us get caught in no man's land while these shells are kind of landing. Uh, and with most of us there, it's kind of really yeah, yeah. weird position. The majority of the population is wandering around in culture wars, no man's land, etc., while these sides kill each other. And it takes up far too much attention and it takes up far too much time. Well, I, yeah, I essentially agree with that. I, I do. I do remember when it happened, thinking there was a sort of large faddy element to Black Lives Matter. A sort of friend of mine called it Black Lives Matter for now, and um, you know he was trying to capture the fact that uh, soon we'd move on to another movement. But actually, I do. I think in their case, it did leave behind um, a, a bit of a, a. You know, certainly, I, I found it. Speaking for myself, I found at a moment where actually I did reflect on how deep and, st- and structural racism is. I read quite a lot of people, including Satnam Sanghera's book, for example, yeah. which really did educate me. Um, and so I learned. So I, I, I've always complained when people sort of say this because this is novel and sometimes a bit over and and sometimes it is taken over by left-wing groups and sometimes it's a bit sort of uh, over emphatic and sometimes people stretch it to ludicrous extents but you still learn something from it if you're listening properly and it was definitely true because partly i think it was all happening around covid uh joined lockdowns i think people did go off and read books that they might not have done and absolutely i mean some of them some of them to be to you know so that there was a vast discrepancy the 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 book that was um, why I don't talk to, uh, to to white people about race. I didn't. I, I I thought it was interesting to learn her perspective, but I didn't otherwise learn a great deal mm. from it. Whereas Satnam's, I felt I did. Yeah. Um, so I, I I there was sort of it was quite a wide discrepancy, but still it was good. To, it was a, it was a good debate to have, and we learned yeah. some stuff we wouldn't otherwise have done. And sometimes that comes along with people saying going 
over top. You just have to filter yeah. that out, I think. A bit. No, that's definitely true. But the uh, but it takes that man's book, which is a very good book. You then get a whole set of people, and indeed almost kind of whole TV stations set up in the meantime, dedicated to the proposition that books like that are appalling, <laughs> um, and that they're terrible, and they don't contribute to debate. They just make white people guilty and stuff like that. And it just well, uh, I think crucially, much like the the Northern Ireland Protocol, they haven't read it because uh, yeah. it's actually but just it, a really interesting well, history. Of course, even yeah, they, yeah. even those people are making so. Sort of valuable point. So actually, the whole debate about statues, I found it very interesting. It makes me think, now, whenever I see a statue, I'm thinking a lot more about what is acceptable mm. for us to keep betraying, or what are we learning for it? Should there be a statue of Clive of India at the bottom of the steps of the Foreign Office or not? I, fu- I found them, in fact, much more stimulating, and they're not easy to... to uh, to decide upon these things. I do tend to go with those people who think we shouldn't try to take things down just in order to... You know, we've still, we basically got a statue of Oliver Cromwell and of Charles II, right? And not <laughs> with a not very great distance of both of them. He, he means Charles I, by sorry, the way, although so we sorry. do somewhere have Charles II. I, I apologise, of course, we do. But they're not very far from each other, and both of them were massively controversial. The statue of Oliver Cromwell's outside the Commons because the the, the Irish nationalists didn't want it inside. The statue of Charles the First is mm. at the end of um, the 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 Mall because obviously it was hidden uh, yeah. during the Civil War. So, but we've got both of those, and I think that's a good thing. Okay, let's move on because I want to get some. Uh, let's get some callers on. who want to speak to Finkelvich, uh, Philip in Tooting's on the line. Morning, Philip. Good morning. What would you like to ask Finkelvich? I, I, I had a question, but I was just going to say first of all, David Aronovich leaving the Times is a reason for considering my subscription. I'm really, really. Hang on a minute. What, what, what about me and Danny? What about our columns? I don't, <laughs> I don't buy the Times on a Thursday. <laughs> Or read it avidly on a Wednesday evening. Sorry, Matt, for you, but uh, <sighs> for David's words of wisdom. So <laughs> farewell, and I hope we can keep up. Anyway, my question. Yeah, come on, Philip, come on. Yeah, yeah. Before he gets um, all the sack. It's about the gap. <laughs> a lot of people are very interested in politics, and there's a very small subset of us who are very interested in the in party politics and the gap between those interested in political issues, whether it's equality or whatever. And I wanted to know how think of it think that gap could be closed and particularly because both um both of them have moved away from where they were politically originally i think david's left the labor party and danny may be still taking the tory whip but has a lot of interesting things to say about the state of the tory party so how do we close the gap between politics as perceived by the mass of people and party politics as operated by this small 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 group of slightly peculiar people Danny? So a lot of people aren't interested even in those bigger political issues, and they certainly not they don't have much uh, interest. They they let politics a lot of the time go by, and so a lot of things, phrases that you discuss, you know, even things like uh, should we put a penny on income tax to pay uh, for education? Lots of people think that means uh, a penny in uh, a penny altogether rather than a penny in a pound. So a lot of the political debates we have, most people don't engage in. And I'm not. I think the gulf is so big, it's hard to um, to close altogether. But the the basic answer is you. you People are interested in things that affect them and their own lives and the lives of their families. That motivates them. So, for example, pensioners are strongly across the amount of pension <laughs> they're being paid, and other people are less interested in it. Uh, uh, there, the, the obvious problem here is what you do about the long term, uh, what politicians do about the long term. I and mean, I think I would say if I've learned anything, um, so, so many things actually in the last few years, but if I've learned anything, almost 
all our crises are embedded in not dealing with long-term problems when you should and could have dealt with them. Um, and it's not that nobody noticed. It's just that there was no political premium in doing it. So somehow or other, we have to kind of join up in the minds of the voters who are actually going to make a decision about this so that politicians do it the short and the longer term. Now, climate change is the obvious example here. And we've actually not done that bad a job. Although it's a slight shame, really, that you actually have to have some of the consequences of, the, uh, of climate change already in front of you before you do it. But I think... And I think... That's part of the trust. I th I, I'm hoping that people would put more trust in a politician that says, this is tricky, but long term, you can see this is what we're going to have to do. Oh, it was interesting. And I suppose the other problem is that we've spent so long arguing about the thing we're still talking about, Brexit, that all those other long-term issues haven't been addressed either because of bandwidth and, and political pressure. Let's move on. We've got... Uh, thank you for that, Philip. Uh, we've got Rebecca in Cambridgeshire. Morning, Rebecca. Morning. What would you like to ask Finkovich? Well, my question for Danny and David is, um, has your co-commentator caused you to change your mind in a material way on any issue as a result of your weekly discussions? An excellent question, Rebecca. Have Thanks. either of you changed the other's mind? Uh, or has your mind changed by the others? I, I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, in, in quite that way. But it's certainly the case, and you just heard Danny now in fine form on how you might kind of look at the statues debate. There is a quality that Danny has of being able to look at a problem in a slightly kind of different way and being open to it, which I immensely value uh, and which I've valued a lot and which does teach me something. As you know, the reason why the Cerberus thing, I think, came about is because I have a tendency, really, to be, what, slightly more pugilistic occasionally, <laughs> and Danny has a tendency to be less pugilistic. I think both these things can occasionally be good characteristics, yeah. but it's a good idea to modify them. Yeah. So imagine you've got kind of, you know, your good angel and your bad angel sitting on your shoulder. I mean, we all, we all, we all think like this. Um, it enables me to have another angel on my shoulder, giving me, said, well, yeah, you might think about looking at it like this. And I think that's just incredibly valuable. So... Um the answer to your question is uh, that I think every Conservative ought to have a very close friend, in, as I do, in David Aronovich, uh, because, because it means that you can never hold um, flip opinions designed to kind of appeal to a Conservative crowd without feeling the challenge of Aronovich. <laughs> so these, these are very valuable to me to make sure that I never um, accept kind of half half suggested arguments that don't actually work. And, you know, David and I have had a lot of arguments about immigration where we don't agree, uh, but David's question is always, well, OK, but how do you make what you're suggesting actually work? I mean, I was I was for Remain um, in the referendum quite clearly, but he was the first person to emphasise to me how, how deep the problems would be. And I don't think I'd probably... You know, if you probably just associate with other Conservatives, you could you get yourself into a debate where, however, whatever side you are, you are on, you may not appreciate them so it's it's uh, something i recommend to everybody is to have good close friends that don't always agree with you on everything and uh, listen to them carefully because they're telling you important things that's some top top advice so lots of you've been sending in questions um we'll do some uh, more in a moment i think we've got al in west sussex on the line morning al good morning how are we i'm very good i'm very good what would you like to ask finkovich um, well, it's been 18 years since uh, David joined the Times, and I wanted to ask... What well, it, was before I bought, it was before I was born. <laughs> I've got a son who's 18 this week, so yeah, it's uh, a lifetime away. But what's the biggest change been in Britain since David started at the Times? 
Oh, yeah. th- I mean, as you can imagine, when you're thinking about your kind of valedictory and whether you're actually going to make it at all, that's precisely what you start thinking about. What are the what what are the biggest changes? I started the week before seven seven. Um, and so 7-7 happened in, the, I think, the week two of my being there. Now, if you remember what we were concerned with in 2005 and compare it with what we're con- uh, concerned with now, uh, it was before the 2008 crash. Uh, so a whole, a whole series of things, but I think the biggest change that has happened in kind of political terms has been a generational polarisation such as we have never, ever before seen in this country uh, that really should be telling us more than I think we're currently listening to about it. Now, there are lots of other huge changes, of course there are, um, but some of them I would have anticipated, like Vladimir Putin turning out to be an extremely bad thing indeed. <laughs> uh, you just couldn't... I just didn't think he was an, a, a foolish thing as well uh, and so on. But I think the biggest thing... Thing really has been I suppose I suppose I feel a sense of generational guilt about the situation that we have left younger people in that I didn't feel in 2005 Danny there's no uh, I think the rise of populism which is associated with actually the same thing um, and probably dates to the 2007 2008 yes it possibly does yeah and um and I joined the times actually literally about two three weeks before 9-11 four weeks um and so that seemed to be a sort of epoch making event but actually by comparison it possibly possibly wasn't uh, by comparison with a lot of the other things that happened since but it may be that in 30 years time we reflect on the republican party taking the turn that it has in the united states becoming quite a dangerous political movement was was possibly the most most uh, important post-war uh, political happening, but that's just political. I suppose if you're looking at a longer perspective, it'll turn out to be the development of AI. <laughs> yeah, we'll all be replaced by robots. I, I joined the Times just before Brexit, so we've all had our own things to deal with. Um, <laughs> uh, let's do some of the other questions. Uh, Steve says, in a tag team wrestling event, who would win, Finkelvich or Anton Deck? <laughs> Anton Deck definitely. I mean, <laughs> any sporting competition, I definitely come second. <laughs> Me I, too. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've actually, um, I was actually the substitute for the under fifteen B team in one council game. That was for last football, week for football, <laughs> and that was my. That's that's the entire. That's the summit of my sporting okay. achievement. I also came first in the egg and spoon race. The egg, I, and I also defeated Seb Coe in the egg and spoon race. My it's, summit is well I, done. I'm playing for the second fifteen for my school rugby team and so on. And I've never scored a try. And I get the ball not far from the try line. And I'm going as fast as I can. Unfortunately. As I move forward, my body gets lower and lower and lower and lower until about one yard away from the try line, I fall on my face. <laughs> and that is the highlight, apart from running the London Marathon, actually. I was okay. but, but that's not really sporting. That's yeah. more kind of... David did endurance. that in an unbelievably short time. What was it? Th- less, under three hours? No, no. God, no. Four hours, 20, oh, no. Four hours 25, okay. 45. <laughs> not, no, quite, not quite. Not quite. I, have I, hard, I hardly remember. <laughs> What's the most stupid thing you've done at the Times, dressing up-wise? I mean, we've seen a lot of you with that dressing gown in the spa. Oh, uh, dressing up-wise? Yeah. Dressing up in nothing. I mean, but yeah. but Nicola Jill, the evil genius who, who <laughs> runs that side of the Times, etc. One of her missions was to get all the most serious people in the Times, particularly the men, in a state of undress at some point yeah. or another and get them photographed. I, I did. I did a fake tan. 
Um, <laughs> after which I went, I had to go and talk to David Cameron in his lounge, <laughs> sitting on his and Sam Cam's sofa, white sofa, with this kind of stuff dripping off me. I felt absolutely, I was ro- sitting right on the edge of it. Uh, and then and then Nicola made me t- do a photograph in that Christine Keeler pose. <laughs> and my, about, about six months later, my son and his friends did the let's have a look of our dads up on the internet. And they all came up with, you know, their chief accountant of some company or they were, you know, worked for the railways. And I came up with a Christine Keeler photograph of me with a suntan. <laughs> I... Makes me dressing up as Theresa May seem quite tame by comparison. I was still no, that was, that, no, that was really humiliating. <laughs> 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 me. Right, well, on that, now, what an excellent question from Steve uh, to take us down a very Finkelvich sort of uh, trip down the um, memory lane. So what um, we thought we'd do is let's take a look back over some of David's uh, highs and lows. Oh, God, not the lows. Over the, well, they are mostly lows, to be honest, because I, I, <laughs> I put it together. Uh, this is, uh, let's go right back to the very beginning where David invented Finkelvich. You've said earlier on uh, in, in, in teeing up this discussion that uh, Danny and I always disagree. Actually, we haven't done yet. The, We're going to be having. Be, uh, well, I was going to say trading there is something called the Finkelvich that should be called the Finkelvich conundrum. Um, the Finkelvich conundrum, which is this: we've never voted the same way, and we actually don't disagree about very much. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. I once really wanted to strangle a busker in Dresden. It's a pity there aren't two Greg hands, aren't there? Then we could talk about a safe pair of hands. <laughs> and I've now exhausted my level of interest. <laughs> You know, I, I was really tempted to give you a nice long bit of radio silence there, just to make you feel nervous. Uh, very good morning to David Ivanovich. Morning, David. Uh, oh, there we can hear. All right, now I can hear. Uh, good morning, Danny. Good morning. I think David was trying to make a joke, which was kind of lost slightly in the... Uh, well, it wasn't um, lost at all. It was... Uh, <laughs> millions and millions of people out there got it. What are you trying to suggest? <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, where are you then? And beaming in, David Ivanovich. Morning, David. How do you know I'm beaming? He's now back in his bunker. Morning, David Ivanovich. <laughs> back in the bunker. Everybody else in Britain appears to have met the Queen and to have something to say about it and had to have said it on one outlet or another. Uh, and I'm feeling very, very left out. I once went to Hugo Boss and I bought a shirt which is kind of yellow background with ducks on it. Big ducks. Matt, Matt, you're supposed to do this breathily, for God's sake. You're supposed to say, and now the state crown of well, the, 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 is the making car, its I entrance the crowd. So the crowd. on the purple cushion held by the aquarium. Yes, well, that's what all happening. That is all happening. But there are two mazes sticking out the window, a bit like somebody going to the dump and they can't shut their boot. And so what do you prefer? Do you prefer trussists to trussites? Trussites, I think, sounds like something that you kind of, you know, uh, Mary Anning found along the beach in Dorset. That you find, oh, it's a very, very interesting trussite. It seems to have had 50, you know, 1,500 legs and be uh, eight foot long or something like that. Enjoy this as they tickle your toes at the end of the bar. Well, that could have gone on for hours. Uh, David, we've got you a little card, just to say, uh, which you're allowed to open now. Uh, to say thank you for all of your your sterling efforts on Finkovich. 
uh, frequently totally undermining the entire premise of the uh, of the conversation and the, the format of radio. Um, it's been an absolute delight. And I was really excited when I got to work with David Wadovich when I joined the Times. He was one of the ones I'd heard of, this Finkelvich bloke, and slightly pa- uh, Finkelstein bloke, who slightly passed me by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lovely card. Uh, Explain Matt, what's on the front I, of your I mean, card. I don't know whether... Uh, I've never understood how you get television on radio, etc. <laughs> what I'm holding this up to oh, so yeah. that people can see it, but etc. But it's a brilliant card. It's got, it's, it's got Matt down there. It's got both Danny and I as Cerberus, which I think is right, actually. It's a three-headed dog. And so it's we a are three-headed the three-headed dog. dog. Uh, or Kerberus. Or Kerberus. Or, 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 or it could be Sard. You get a, a, a greeting Sard, couldn't it? Very good. A greeting, Sard. It's a lovely card. And uh, can I just say this? It's it's been one of the great pleasures of my career to do this uh, program with you, Matt. You are a really splendid broadcaster, and Danny is a really splendid friend and and foil. That's right. Uh, I mean, no one tunes in to hear you say that, David. By the way, (laughs) (laughs) but 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 seriously. Working with David Aronovich is an absolute joy, and uh, it's uh, it's a constant stimulation. I'm very happy that we'll carry on being friends. Uh, not so happy that we won't carry on. But being I have to tell you, together. just outside the window there, the coffin has actually. Now <laughs> <arrived>. <laughs> I'm so I'm afraid I'm going to have to go and get in it. David, it's uh, well, we will just have to do this over lunch instead, won't we? Without the the, the trouble of uh, of trying to stop anyone from swearing, um, it's been an absolute delight, gents. Thank you so much. Uh, Danny will be back in a couple of weeks' time when we find a replacement for David, or we don't know. Maybe we'll get an AI bot to do it. We'll just use your clips, just, replace, just random random clips of David Ivanovich in response to whatever the topic of, of the day is. Um, gents, thank you so much. Loads and loads of messages coming in uh, saying how much they love David. Uh, so um, yeah, best of luck, David, in all in all that you do. Danny, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. Hold up. 